You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. The, the, the conversation was kind of amazing because, you know, you have Jack who really is into microeconomics. And let, let me jump in here for a second yeah. with Jack. I don't think he gets enough recognition in the, in the history of, uh, of, of the center and all of that. But like his, his micro his micro one course, you said Henderson and Quant, Golden Ferguson, is very methodical. And there's one thing that I remember clearly that I took from it and we have in our Hain Economic Way of Thinking textbook. And I remember it, it turned a light on. We're talking about supply and demand and all that. And Jack turned to the class and said, understand quantity demanded and quantity supplied, they're plans we're not talking just about P's and Q's here and solving algebraic problems. These are plans. And we're talking about the reconciliation of plans, the coordination of plans as quantity supplied and quantity demanded move closer to one another. And even as an undergraduate at at Northern Michigan University, no one ever said it so clearly and so simply. And I think a lot of students can, undergraduates certainly, and, and I emphasize this in my 101 class, and we do in the textbook, I think students can, can appreciate more of how markets coordinate when it's not just talking about simple P's and Q's, but, but the, but the yeah. convergence of plans. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, right? And, and uh, if there is one thing, and it's such a simple idea that I took from Jack's uh, Micro One course, it, w- it, was, it was that. And uh, you know another person we should mention, Colleen. Oh yeah, Colleen Moretta. Yeah, she she was the she glue that held them all together. It's this whole egalitarian place and all of that, and Colleen held the center together. Yeah, she's That's dealing with young assistant professors who are busy teaching, who are busy doing research and trying to get published. She's dealing with all these crazy young students. And and she was the glue that that and and the sensibility that that held that center together for years. Yeah, the student. I mean, Colleen was amazing, and uh, you know, again, you know, these guys were all assistant professors trying to not only do all that stuff, but try to do it at a level to earn tenure in a department that just gave a Nobel Prize to somebody. Right. right? And, and, and had another guy who eventually is going to be distinguished fellow of the, of the AEA. And you have the, you know, we, you and I in particular took advantage of this. We have Kenneth Bolden come into the, into the mix. And so all of a sudden we have the second John Bates Clark medal winner. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think the center did, which was pretty amazing besides the idea of making it seem like all of this stuff was freely available to us at any time we wanted on demand, right? We never had to wait to, you know, when, after Gary Becker passed away, there was a discussion about how Gary Becker managed his time. Now, obviously Gary Becker is, you know, a superstar in economics and his secretary 
manages time so that a student could meet with them, a dissertation student could meet with them, and they'd have 15 minutes, and that was it, and then they'd have to go on. So it's like that. We never had any of that. They, they had all. an open-door policy for us yeah. or whatever, so it was kind of crazy. Um, and Don, and, like, like Don would go to lunch with us. And dinner. Remember, and because dinner. he had to teach at night. Yeah, so yeah, that's right. And, and, and dinner, yeah, I'm, I'm right. It wasn't uh, – there were a couple occasional lunches, but it, but it was dinner. And we you're went, right. We Don's – Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, that a part of that is weird in the sense that, you know, we were going to school, uh, you know, basically Monday through Thursday, seven seven thirty to 10 o'clock at night. Cause they didn't have, the only person who had a afternoon class was Buchanan. Everyone else had the nighttime classes. And uh, at the same time, our seminars were on Friday and we didn't have the internet. So when we were working, we were at the office on Saturdays as well. So basically we were in Robinson Hall six days a week yeah. for some variation of it yeah. of that day. And they were too, right? Because they couldn't work at home in the way that you could work at home today. Yeah. Um, and so it was, a, it was different. And uh, I think that the, you know, Jack and Don in particular were so giving of their time. Um, and I, when you were talking about Jack and Micro, I do think his book – that came out of his dissertation is underappreciated for exactly the reasons you're talking about. I, I agree. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it should have been discussed more. And in a weird way, Don. Part of the problem, Pete, part of the problem was the publisher, Philosoph, uh, philosophy. Yeah, yeah, it was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And it was ridiculously expensive and hard to yes. get and everything. Um, but if you think about it, even Don in the rivalry book, which is his, his, most articulated statement about the difference between the neoclassical and the Austrian view, he kind of glosses over some details in that differences with Jack delves into in much yes. greater detail. So even issues like information search costs, people could read Lavoie's book and think, you know, even, you know, maybe not national economic planning, but rivalry, they might be able to think that it's really like a really complicated search problem. I mean, right. I, that would have to be a bad reading of it, but you could get that. Yeah. But you can't if you read National Gun Planning. But Jack, you would never make that error. Yeah. You, you know, understand what's all involved in search theory. And, yes. Yeah. Well, Don's rivalry book is, of course, his most Kersnerian. Yeah. Now, Kersner's good on search costs and all that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but and, and I think part of it was the, the I mean, he wrote it on, under Israel, but... Uh, Part of it was his audience, Don's audience. And, and he had to, I think, he had to step very carefully as to not alienate the audience, but to draw them in and, and understand the argument he was ultimately right. trying, trying to make. But I, I also agree with you that, that Jack's book goes into choice theory yeah. in a way that really no Austrians of that time, certainly of that time. And, and really, even after, Austrians haven't explored choice theory the way that Jack did. There's a young guy, uh, 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 Merrick Hudik, in the Czech Republic, who's trying to do some things on this. He's written some good papers, but 
if you remember, even with Don, like being influenced by Jack when Jack was doing those papers on ordinal marginal utility, yes, and Don just telling us, well, indifference curves are good enough for government work, kind of thing, right? Yes, yes. And and, and uh, so Jack really was. I, I so I agree with you. That was uh, Jack does get under uh, sold. But I wanted to go back to Don and ask you about your own work in this case because we've been talking about teaching and and my, and economic theory in general, but. Both of us went into the field of comparative economic systems. And when I'm trying to summarize the position, sometimes I describe us as Don's uh, lieutenants. Uh, well, he, he called us that. I think he called us disciples, which is a deeper word. <laughs> and, and I think your response was, is that uh, I'm not the disciple of anyone, right? So anyway, um, but, but, um, but we were, I, I, I tell people in the shorthand way, we were his, his, his lieutenants. And what happened was rivalry in central planning comes out. Both of us are so thrilled that our professor has published these two books, which we think are like the one-two punch against mm-hmm. co- comprehensive central planning, against non-comprehensive planning, mm-hmm. you know. And the rivalry in central planning book gets some notoriety, you know, so big people. So... You know, this guy, uh, you know, I think his name is Bidelow, publishes yeah. a, an essay uh, yeah, in the EJ saying, Lavoie's book's great, but he doesn't understand what the hell's going on in Yugoslavia. You know, Bottomore publishes a book, says Lavoie's book's great, but he doesn't understand the Soviet experience. So I take the Soviet experience, you take Yugoslavia, and we go from there. We work on these different parallel but different sides mm-hmm. of, the, of the debate. So... Uh, forget mine. I want to ask you about the Yugoslavia model, your experience going up to Cornell and working with the leading workers, can, you know, self-management scholar in the world. Uh, you're a Slavonic. Uh, you also go and work in Yugoslavia with the, the various different, as a Fulbright fellow. Yeah. Um, this is how you begin your career, Cornell and then Yugoslavia when it still is Yugoslavia, but not, you know. <laughs> Just <pretty clearly. laughs> Yeah, yeah. So tell us about that experience, what that was like, both for you and Julie, like picking up and going to Yugoslavia. That must have been an amazing trip, you know. From It's one thing to go from northern Michigan to Fairfax, yeah. but Fairfax to Ithaca, Ithaca to, to you know, uh, where, where were you at? Dubrovnik, I guess, right? Or uh, yeah, yeah, I spent a lot of time in Dubrovnik. We went to uh, Zagreb. Look, it, it was really hard convincing Julie to go from Marquette, Michigan to Fairfax, Virginia. But somehow we were both excited about going to uh, Yugoslavia. So that was great. Um, you know, my, my research, I, I wrote my, my book. I think you're right that, that you, you took the, there, there are reasons why we did what we did. Yeah. And, and we were responding. And like you said, lieutenants, I think Don did call us lieutenants too. Okay. <laughs> but, but respond, you know, Don couldn't do everything. Right. He couldn't answer every argument. And so there's the empirical fact of, of, of Soviet history and there's this both empirical and theoretical fact of, of Yugoslavia, and he couldn't get into all that, and, and he encouraged us to move it in those directions. And I think both of our, our projects complement, were, were founded upon, and complemented Don's project in those two 1985 books. Um, you know, there's something I should say with Don, and that is, uh, you know, Don says, that, that 
And I really liked his metaphor of, of Marx's view of socialism as being this kind of like negative, uh, this negative template of, of, you know, exploring real existing capitalism through the lens of some social, general socialist vision, yet yeah. condemning capitalism because it fails to achieve what his vision would achieve. Right. And, and Don says in Rivalry and Central Planning, and he said in his lectures and all of that, that, that Marx has a fully consistent and coherent view of socialism. Consistent, fully consistent and coherent. And socialism is founded upon central planning. You and I have talked about this for decades now, Peter. Yeah, yeah. It's founded on central planning. So here now I'm finally looking Just at... Just so that people know that we spent many an hour in Fenwick Library in a little cubicle with the door shut discussing the economic and philosophical manuscripts. Yes. We read Marx. There was no one teaching Marx at George Mason. And uh, I was Marx trying to insist that the old Marx is the same as the, the young Marx, and there's only one Marx. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I think there is only one Marx. But, but Don wanted to say that one Marx is a central planner. Yeah, and so you wanted to say now, I'm, Marxism. Yeah. And so I'm looking at, you know, exposing myself to, to Yugoslavian Marxism and all of that, and they're talking about a different Marx. They, they were arguing there's one Marx, too. Yes, I know. It's, it's the young Marx who matures, but he never gives up the idea of alienation and, and, and all that they, stuff. Just a side note very quick. Yeah. You know, so we first meet 1984, and you're, you're talking to me about some things like this. You might have even brought up the Rothbard disillusionment or whatever. And, um, and I said to you something like, but the freedom philosophy, which is what they, <laughs> they call it at fee, right? So right. I said, but Dave, the freedom philosophy. And I remember, I'll never forget this. You said, there's many different freedom philosophies, Pete. And I was like, yeah. what do you mean? There's only one. Yeah. <laughs> but no T.F. Gann Graves told me there's only one. Right, right. No and one has a monopoly on a freedom philosophy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but that relates to what you're just talking about. Yeah. Well, because that's just it. Yeah, because they, they have this. That yeah, yeah. The the, the 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 Yugoslav Marxists had a freedom philosophy too themselves. So did the Soviets in their own crazy way. But but so, so did those in Yugoslavia. And the thing is, their interpretation of Marx was that that there is one coherent Marx. But their argument was, and I'm reading this on my own now, and their argument was that 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 Marx's vision had to be one of decentralized planning because if he upheld central planning as, as the ideal a set of economic structures and institutions, central planning not only gives us a kind of Stalinism, but it gives us even in theory a univer one universal capitalist dictating to everyone else what to do, how to do, where to do, etc. And, and it wouldn't end alienation. There'd be no markets, but now people would be, instead of being at mercy of the man, the capitalist man, people would be at mercy, this is my slogan, they'd be at, at mercy of the plan. Yeah. And so I'm reading this, and it's not jiving exactly with what Don was saying. And so I'd go to Don's office, and you know some of our discussions... They were, they were never heated or anything like that. But Don was resisting my, my idea that, you know, maybe Marx 
uh, while the young and the mature and all that, it's all one marks. You know, this, this stuff of, of, of decentralized planning makes a lot more sense within Marx's own vision. Now, it doesn't work. We all understand that, and I attempted to articulate that. But, but so there's not necessarily a full and coherent Marx himself. And it took a while and several conversations with Don. Yeah. And I don't know if I ever fully convinced him at the time, but he became open to that argument. And that becomes the central argument of my dissertation. Yeah. And remember, it's, it's titled Marxism and Worker Self-Management, mm-hmm. colon, The Essential Tension. And I think there's a tension in Marx himself. The logic of, uh, of, of abolishing markets and all of that, Marx understood some of the logic. And the logic leads to centralization. But that rubs against his view of praxis and all this stuff and alienation. And so there, there's some tension there. And what I tried to show is, is even in, in, in the theory coming out of Yugoslavia, there's tensions in their own theory between decentralization and centralization that they can't solve. And those tensions arise largely through the knowledge problem. Mm-hmm. Plans have to be reconciled. And, the, you know, it, it, we could go into a, a lot of what all that's about. But, but I see, so yeah, I saw Yugoslavia as really problematic. You, you mentioned uh, uh, going to Cornell. One of the things in, in Don's... I just, I just before, I'll get to Cornell in one second, but I just want to, I think this issue of plan, it goes back to what you're saying with Jack. So, but that notion of the reconciliation process of plans or reconciliation of conflicting plans as yeah. what happens in markets and politics and everything, that actually permeated our, our work, our joint work together on how we understood market process. You know, yep. it was all about this reconciliation process. It's why we didn't think that the Valrasian model that we were learning from Mike could, could, could do it because it all required pre-reconciliation. Yes. And it didn't focus on the reconciliation process. Yes. And so I, I want you to talk about your experience in, 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 in with, with Vanek and your book and everything that you did with him. Um, but there's two things that, that I want to come back to about this work before we go on to other things, which is, uh, one, democratic theory and the implications that you see for radical decentralization with regard to democratic theory, yeah. right? So like in your, in your second book on these issues, um, and, and then also the role that you see of worker self-management in a market society as opposed yeah. to in juxtaposition to a market society. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll focus mostly on, on, the, on the latter. In, in Don's comparative systems course, he covers worker self-management in the, in the context of Yugoslavia. So, you know, the self-managed firm, uh, and there's great debates on that, but it was this, the, the neoclassical economics of the self-managed firm from Vanek to Paovich was all looking at the firm structure as idealized in, in Yugoslavia. And in that course, Don dealt with that. And he also seemed to, in a way, very subtly, make Vanek out to be some kind of fascist. Yes. <laughs> in some sense. 
Luigi Valori. Yeah, Luigi. Yeah, right. Which we did. We did study study actual fascists and. Yeah. And this was, the, this was the modern version of it. Right, right. In some sense, it, it harkens back to a kind of fascism. So now I'm reading Vanek on my own, like as a third year student or whatever it was. And I'm, I'm, I don't see a fascist in him. I, I see a huge advocate of worker self-management. And I thought, well, I'm criticizing this. I'm exploring it critically in my dissertation. And I wrote Vanek a letter early on and said, you know, what's the possibility of, of visiting for a semester and, 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 you know, getting to know, you know, you and, 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 and your, your, your approach to, to the theory and all of that. And it was too early on. And he wrote me a kind short letter saying, well, maybe when you're further along in your, in your degree program, uh, you know, you write, write back to me again, which I then did. And uh, I, the interesting thing, Pete, the center paid for that semester. Yeah, they were amazing. I, I, I didn't receive. Yeah. I didn't receive money from Cornell. The center paid for it, and it was the last semester when I was working on my dissertation. And so I, I sat in on Vanek's uh, course on on worker self management, and we had many conversations. And I found well, this this has really nothing to do with fascism. Um, and I found that, that, that Vanek was, unfortunately, he looked at the self-managed firm, Pete, as, as a panacea. Whether it's self-management in a decentralized system like Yugoslavia was supposed to be or aspiring to be, or whether it's self-managed firms in, in this country or that, Vanek thought that workers' self-management in any institutional structure was going to solve problems of, of, uh, of, of, of worker rights. It's going to solve problems uh, associated with environmental concerns. It'll probably solve problems of racism and sexism. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's you know, solving everything. Yeah. Right. No matter where it's adopted in the world, yeah. he was gung-ho for worker self-management because he literally did see it as a panacea. And, and I did get that sense being there that semester with him. And I tried to convince him in, 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 in you know, casual conversation, delightful conversation, that the only way self-management makes sense is in, in truly in a, in a market process. But you actually edited book, like a major reference volume with we, him? We edited... Um, you know, Pete, I was, uh, I, I was in upstate New York. I was teaching at SUNY Oswego, and there, there was, a, uh, there was a, an evening where I was throwing darts at a dartboard. And I was thinking about paper or book ideas. And three, in, in the one setting, within one hour, three edited book projects popped into my head. The first, the market process. Yeah. I thought, Pete and I, we can't let the market process journal articles just sit on shelves. We got to put this together as a book. Yeah. So that was one, and it was accomplished. The second thing, Throwing Darts, was a book on market process theories, edited books, which you and I then did. Yeah. And the third was a book collecting all the classic literature, the debates on 
worker managed firms, worker self management, uh, self managed socialism. And that I couldn't do on my own because I, I, I really didn't have a reputation at all in this area. And I approached Vanek about that and said, and, said, and Vanek had many students out there who right. were well along in their careers or tenure. And none of them saw the entrepreneurial opportunity for that set of books. So yeah. I approached Yaroslav on that. This is after I got back. You yeah, know, you know, you know how, what a small world this is all about is that um, I went to Oakland University. You go to Cornell and then, and then to Yugoslavia. Yeah. At Oakland University, they had a, uh, it was a research active department uh, and mainly health economists. And one of the main health economists that was there uh, was a guy who did his PhD with Vanek. And they had a a program where you had a senior mentor that would try to tell you you how to be an economist and get tenure and all that kind of stuff like that as you go through. And he was my mentor. Yeah. Mm. It was pretty amazing. Um, And so that was kind of, that was kind of a funky uh, thing. I also think this issue about being entrepreneurial is um, sometimes underappreciated by graduate students and in retrospect, I think about like weird things a lot like that. So you and I took every advantage to learn from Kenneth Bolding as much as we could. Um, not all of our fellow classmates did that. And Kenneth Bolding ended up by passing away when we were very young. And we got invited by his former students to write for a volume honoring him as part of his obituary. And how the hell did they know about us? And I, the only, I can't figure out how the hell they knew about us, except yeah. that Bolding must have said something. And I think that the reason why Bolding might have said something is because we were persistent. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, first thing, <laughs> you know, 1985, 85 was a great year at the center because that's where we really had our feet on the ground, right? Yeah. We're establishing ourselves as students. Uh, Steve too. Steve, Steve shows up in '85, and Don's two books come out, and right. Larry White's book c- comes out, Free Banking yeah. in Britain. And so it, it was, uh, you know, it was a real splash that year. And then the next year was even better. 1986. Look at you and I had Buchanan's Constitutional Economics course, and we had Bolding's History of Thought course. Yeah. Now here. I felt that semester that there was this line back to Frank Knight. Yeah, yeah. Right? In one form or another. And there's this whole Knightian blood running running through these two professors in that course. And and it was it was just an absolutely fascinating time. And let me just mention one other professor who 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 I really enjoyed there. The same year the the uh, winter the spring semester of 86, I took Thelma Levine's yeah. Uh, course, and it was it was offered through the it was a graduate course offered through the sociology department. And Thelma was a Robinson professor, chaired professor, yeah. which she remained then the rest of her career for I, I don't know how many years. And uh, Ralph Rector and I took that course, and there was maybe only a dozen students in it, and it, it was originally intended to be a course on the sociology of knowledge. But Ralph and I had all this interest in the philosophy of science, hermeneutics, and all of that. And we were the only ones talking in her class. And she was a 
great, great teacher. She was fantastic. And she might have been the, the best teacher uh, that, that, I, that I had in my whole career as a student. But the thing is, based well, on our- Well, look at her PBS series. Yes, and she, know, had, she, she yes, made Socrates to Sartre. You from know, Socrates yeah. to Sartre. She had a, it was kind of like the free to choose of philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she saw our burning interest in the philosophy of science that she basically converted what was supposed to be a sociology of knowledge course into a philosophy of science course. And that was fantastic. So this is 1986. So, so I had three, you know, fantastic professors at the same time. Bolding, let's not forget, Bolding was the one who said, you know, he said that George Mason University was so great because, quote, it has no tradition and everything is up for grabs. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was spot on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was also part of that egalitarian aspect that you were saying. Even students, grad students' voices mattered to, to the professors. Yeah, we had it was amazing. Just to just to just to, to uh, one of the things I, I I often think about is as graduate students, what did Don and Jack and others around the area expose us to? Right. So McCloskey came several times. Yes. Right. Uh, and McCloskey had the JEL paper on yep. the rhetoric of economics, and and so we were like, you know, a revolution's about to happen in economics, yes. right? <laughs> Clomer. You know, was right. there? Colander came. Uh, you know, you would have philosophers like Sokolowski. You know, and yep. then because of that, we ended up by going and seeing Gadamer live. You know, yes. we actually saw Hans Georg Gadamer give a yes. talk. If you remember, it was on the on the spoken word. Uh, yes, it was amazing. And the guy was older than dirt, and he yes. gave this amazing talk. It was like you know, amazing. Um, but also at the university at the time, you know, Chomsky came through. Yes. Talked about the Vietnam War. We were there, yeah. you know. Um, Abby Hoffman. And Nicaragua. And Nicaragua. And Nicaragua and, yeah, that's exactly right. And Abby Hoffman was there. Yeah. And by the way, these weren't, you know, the, Abby Hoffman was a big audience, but Chomsky spoke in front of a very small audience. Yes, I remember that. And so we were like right up there with him. And if you remember in 86, after Buchanan won a Nobel Prize, I remember a conversation we had with him after he gave the IHS talk. And you and I were defending the 60s against yeah. him because he was complaining about it. But he actually would argue with us about it rather than just yeah. dismiss these kids yeah. as, as idiots. And, that's, and now reading them in retrospect, that was such a big issue for him. You know, he hated the 60s. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, yeah I didn't realize how much of, how, how, how close of an issue that was to his heart. Yeah, and, and we're, we're like, we're like, <laughs> we're like, the anti-war movement's great. You know? uh, yeah, Here's yeah. this guy who's, you know, Admiral Nimitz is, you know, yeah. second in command out there in the Pacific, and we're like, right. what are you talking about? War is right. horrible. You yeah. know, Gene Sharp. You know, right. we, yes. we don't need to do this. And, and he's entertaining it because, you know, this is also bolding. It, it, you know, it's just, a, it, it's a, I, I, I'm getting away from substance and just putting it in this framework, but... I think there was such a unique environment for debating ideas and being listened to by people encouraged. I mean, Victor Vanberg, I mentioned Michael Lexi of asking me to give lectures in his class. This is to PhD students, not like presenting my paper, actually like you substitute this week for me and we right. talked about this. But I had that happen to me with, uh, you know, with Vanberg, 
did that. And Rowley even. Charles Rowley, wow. who was the most conventional professor in, in all yeah. of mankind, you know, asked me to give a presentation about Austrian subjectivism and industrial organization and all this stuff and costs and everything. And so it was kind of, uh, it, it was an unusual environment. And, and you'll remember this. It was very unusual because going back to what you first said, it was an environment where people also showed up that weren't in school but were from the area, the DC area, and they would bring in their copies of Manicomian State or, yeah. or things like Prices in Production, which were read like 5 million times. And someone would say something and they'd like flip to a page. Right. And uh, you know, and this is the professor, like someone like Kevin Greer teaching modern macroeconomics. Right, right, and they'd be right. like, hi, unpaid whatever. <laughs> and even I would be like, that's a little weird, you know, right. like, yeah. you shouldn't be doing that. But uh, anyway. I wanted to, um, so uh, again, you go and you teach at, you finish your fellowship in Yugoslavia. Tell us a little bit about the experience you had in Yugoslavia in terms of the conditions of the world at the time. Yeah. It was 1989. Yeah, it was, it was right, right on the, on the edge of, of the whole collapse. And uh, Julie and I got there. Uh, in, in January of 89, I, I had defended my dissertation in December. Uh, 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 we got in December of 88. Yeah. And so, and, and, and I was just, you know, just got that done. Uh, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in, in Zagreb at, at the University of Zagreb. And the first transaction I made was in the underground market. The very first transaction. We had the, the rector of, uh, of uh, the University of Zagreb, Dusko Sekulic. He, he got a free apartment as, as, the, as the rector. And it was a new apartment. And we had negotiated beforehand $150 a month. And we were there for six months. So $900 cash. And we, we arrived. There were many transportation problems getting there. We arrive at about one o'clock in the morning. There's a frozen fog in the air. We, we step off a bus. We're in, we're in Croatia now. And there's a man standing there under like a light, you know, in the fog. And it was him. He had waited for hours for us to show up, actually. And uh, he took us to the apartment. And the first thing I did was take out a stack of cash and, and give it to him. Um, and, and he was a nice guy and all of that. But I got to tell you, Julie and I felt, and we're almost certain of it, after about four weeks in that apartment, that it was bugged. Yeah. And that was interesting. That's an interesting experience, Pete. Yeah. There are too many coincidences about things that we'd say in the apartment that would then be, in a way, responded to when we're dealing with others. And, you know, I don't need any good reason to be paranoid, but I had a good reason. <laughs> With that. So we learned how to, you know, if we're going to say anything, you know, that's important and shouldn't be shared or heard by others, we'd have to, you know, talk outside, speak outside together. Um, but have you ever read uh, the biggest book, Whispers? No. If, 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 you, if you get a chance, it's a really great book. It's about this phenomena in the Soviet context. Yeah. This idea of whispering and everything. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's, it's an unsettling feeling, I'll tell you that. Uh, when we got there, January of 89, the inflation rate was a mere 200%. I got paid through, the, through my Fulbright grant, I got paid the DNR equivalent of $500 a month. And I can't remember what it was. Uh, 100,000 dinars equaled $1. So my first paycheck, they paid me in dinars, was whatever, I can't remember you know, what it was, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands or 5 million dinars I'm getting. The Fulbright people wanted us, Americans, to use their banking system, yeah. play by the rules of the game. And the banking system with 200% inflation and, and the interest rate was only like 30% at the time, the nominal interest rate. And there's a 200% rate of inflation. Yeah. What we did with each paycheck once a month, I would go and withdraw that full amount of dinars. So after a few months, we literally had bricks of paper money in our hands. And that's a little tricky, Pete, because the teller would be handing over these bricks of money and we're putting them in our pockets or backpack or whatever. And there's people struggling like hell, right, in the country. And they're looking at us, and I spoke terrible, a, a terrible Croatian. Right. Uh, and, and, and they knew we, we weren't, you know, citizens there. And it was a little uh, uncomfortable walking home with that much cash on us each time. And what when, I was in, when I was in Moscow, Dave, I, um, I, I decided I was going to live in the ruble economy and not dollarize myself. That yeah. was my goal, right? And because uh, I wanted to see what it was really like. But I carried around the cash that I had in, the, in my boots in socks against my insoles, right? Yeah. That's where I had it. So Dolan and his wife are there because he's teaching in, in Moscow, Kitty and Dolan and his wife. And uh, they're, they're party people, right? They like to, to drink. And he, he invites me out and I'm not, you know, I, I was a fr- frat boy, so I know how to drink, but I don't know how to drink like Ed Dolan and his wife do because they're professional at it. <laughs> and so they, they, uh, it's in the mid, it's like almost midnight and I'm in the middle of Moscow and I got to get out to my hotel and Dolan arranges, you know, comes out with me and they wait till I get a cab. So I get a cab and Dolan corrects my bad Russian to make sure the guy knows where he's taking me. But, and I'm pretty looped. Okay. But I'm sitting there in the back and then all of a sudden it dawned on me that if this guy turned around and took me to like the, the, the river and just smacked me in the head and took my boots off, he would have enough money for the rest of his, because yeah. I was living in Prague at the time and going back. So I had all this money that I was carrying around with me rather than in a bank. And so he, I'm like, I, all of a sudden I was like sober as a, as like a judge, you know, I was like, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, like, you know, <laughs> Pete, wake yeah. up, you know, don't, don't, yeah. don't ever have anything. And I'm like, you know, I, I couldn't wait to get the hell out of that cab. And it is scary as hell. Uh, you know, when you realize these kind of uh, issues and you don't know uh, the, the interaction. So yeah, you're, you're over there and you're dealing with all of this. The economy's collapsing and everything, but then the bombs start or the, the bombers, right? Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Well, so what, what do you starts to break out. 
Well, no, no. It was, we were, well, yes and no. But before, before I get to that, um, people were coming to us as we got settled down in the area asking for dollars. And we're, <laughs> we're stuck with this crap, too, these dinars. So, you know, we was, I'd occasionally be able to find a way to convert some of those dinars into dollars. But instead, what we did was spend, Pete. Just yeah, spend. Yeah. And, the, and, and the exchange rate was so favorable to the dollar that we could go out to eat every night. You know, uh, no, no problem spending my travel. Um, and spend it as quick as you can. And by the way, and see, this is what I, what's nice that I, what I could share with my undergraduate students in the classroom. We go to a grocery store for shopping and there would be women, say in a small grocery store, and you go on different days of the week and these women would simply go around from item to item changing prices yeah. daily. Yeah. Now, like I said, the inflation rate was 200% when we got there. By the end of uh, 1989, it was 2,000%. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, while, while we were able to live comfortably with some surveillance, under surveillance, but to see people's everyday lives. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. yeah. And, and I tell you this, being in a self-managed firm didn't solve that pro their problem <laughs> at all. I could tell you that. But, but there are also problems in Kosovo. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and. We, we could see clearly real nationalistic animosities between Croatia, Serbia, and, and, and the ethnic Albanians in, in, uh, in Kosovo and the Serbs' treatment of them. It was scary. Yeah. I almost went. There, there was a couple uh, who were from America on a Fulbright. Uh, uh, the woman was on, on a Fulbright grant and her husband. And we almost convinced, me and, me and the husband, the husband and I, we almost convinced, and he was legally blind. We almost convinced ourselves and our wives that the two of us were going to travel down to Kosovo and check things out. Yeah. And we, in the end, in the end we didn't. Thank but God. that was a very scary time because you could see there's the macroeconomic problem there's the microeconomic problem of, of the, the nonsens nonsensical nature of, of worker self-management and decentralized socialism. That in itself wasn't working. And there were these nationalistic animosities. And so we got back, back to the U.S. in July, late July of 1989. And it was shortly after that that the bombing, you know, and the, 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 the outright uh, war began. Uh, yeah, so I, several months I, after that. I was just going to say that, you know, one of the things that Emily Chanley Wright, when I was talking to her, stressed was about how Don uh, really challenged his students with the height of civilization that represented Germany at the, at the turn of the century and in the beginning of the 20th century, and then how Germany descended into barbarism. I think Yugoslavia is one of the more has parts of Yugoslavia or some of the most beautiful, uh, you know, places in the world. Uh, yeah. you know, just physically, uh, absolutely amazingly beautiful. And the people are very friendly and, you know, outgoing and everything like that. And it devolved into a civil war of, yeah. you know, um, you know, if you remember, uh, even, uh, when we were, uh, kids and they had the Olympics, 
graduate graduate school and they had the Olympics and and uh, the uh, uh, the Italian down, uh, uh, downhill skier Tomba was running oh, yeah. and had the Yugoslavian guy with the, the coat with all the fur he would yeah, shake yeah, with yeah, the yeah. yeah right I, I, you know I went out I, I was you know been in Serbia and, and gone out you know to and people just break out in the song and you know all these right. things like that and so it's a totally different kind of feel to then see a country end up in such civil war with each other and what that teaches us about political legal social arrangements i think yeah. is something yeah. that the current generation yeah the different they have different tensions that they see but we we saw those tensions yeah, yeah. and it, it's it's in a way it's amazing that that yugoslavia was, was stitched together the way it was and lasted that long because right. the animosities go back. Yeah, um, a century. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They go back a long time. I, I, I think you mentioned Dubrovnik. I spent six weeks there, uh, three different sessions, two-week sessions, at the uh, Inter-University Center for Postgraduate Studies. And that's, that was the highlight of, of my time in Yugoslavia. D Dubrovnik itself is, is a great you know, old Venetian town on the, on the Dalmatian coast and all that. But uh, it was there that I, at one conference for two weeks, I was able to meet the Praxis group philosophers. I met uh, Mihailo Markovic, Zagorka Golubovic, Svetozar Stojanovic, Rudy Subak. And these were guys that I've read, and Zagorka was a woman, but these are people I read at, at George Mason. Right. And now I'm able to be with them and have sustained conversations with them about their view of Marx, about their view, their, 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 what they saw as the potential and the problems in Yugoslavia. And also, you could see, but we couldn't talk about it, their nationalism, because these were, were academics from both uh, Belgrade and Zagreb, Serbia and Croatia. And it was a really tense time down there and they really didn't want to talk about the, you know, the national problem. Right. And they were, they were in the midst of some of them developing and flaming the, the national problem. Look at Markovic, perhaps the most well-known of the Praxis group. When Milosevic comes to power in Serbia, Markovic became his top propagandist. Yeah, now here you, you got a guy who's been a Marxist all of his life, speaking of internationalism, right? And all of that. And Milosevic comes to power in, in, in Belgrade. And all of a sudden, Markovic, it's like he forgot. And now he's, you know, he's wrong as a Marxist to begin with. His, no, his but he has, he, he has stronger internationalist beliefs than to come to that, yeah. Yeah, so I found that I found that fascinating. By the way, another seminar at uh, in Dubrovnik was on brought it was on anarchism, and it brought scholars of anarchism from Euro, across Europe to Dubrovnik, and we sat for two weeks. People presented papers. There were discussions. There were debates on anarchism in all of its forms. It also brought some like real anarchist young people. Yeah, from like yeah. Denmark and that. And that was a fascinating experience, being with scholars and being with true blue anarchists for two weeks. And the thing is, we all figured 
that that must have been the first above ground collection, conference on anarchism in Eastern Europe in like 40 years. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.